Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald at New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I would not be here month in and month out for the past six years without the generous support of our sponsors. And I want to tell you about them and please check out their websites and check their products out. Biotics Research. For over 40 years, the foundation of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. And finally, I want to give a shout out to my friends over at Rupa Health. They make lab testing easy, fabulous, doable for both you, the clinician, and you, the person being prescribed the lab, the patient. Consider using Rupa as just a super, super, super smart solution to all your laboratory needs. Visit them at rupahealth.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I am thrilled to be bringing Dr. Vittorio uh, Sebastiano to the world of functional medicine. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, who he is, his background. We're going to jump into uh, what I hope to be quite a far-ranging conversation around some of the amazing, amazing science that he's up to. Uh, Dr. Sebastiano is an associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Stanford School of Medicine. His lab has developed a new technology named ERA, that's epigenetic reprogramming of aging, which repurposes the conceptual idea of reprogramming with the goal to promote epigenetic rejuvenation of human adult cells, leaving their identity untouched. This new technology was patented as in, and is being implemented by TURN Biotechnologies, which Dr. Sebastiano co-founded and where he serves as head of research and chair of the scientific advisory board. He's also a member of the Dior Beauty Reverse Aging Scientific Advisory Board. Uh, Dr. Sebastiano, welcome to New Frontiers. Uh, thank you so much for, for having me. I, I'm, I'm flattered and I look forward to, to this conversation. Well, you know, um, I have had the honor, I mean, or just the pleasure of, of, of finding your work and listening to you speak. And you've just got lots of really interesting, provocative stuff to not only say, but what you're demonstrating in your lab. I want to just ask you, like, go back to the beginning and hear what you think aging is. Well, <laughs> that's a very, that's a very difficult question. Um, yeah. I mean, aging, aging is a lot of things that are happening, uh, you know, with time. Uh, right now, so so the, the the scientists that we have been trying to tackle this problem for for a very very long time, uh, but I think that really right now we are at a kind of an inflection point uh, where, for a number of reasons, uh, most importantly the fact that technology also is is developing the right technology is developing actually to right to to answer this question. We're at an inflection point where I think there's going to be 
really a significant massive revolution in the in the field of aging um so <clears throat> um historically uh and i think this has been in part kind of the the, the reason why we have been so quote-unquote slow in understanding uh, what aging is was the fact that uh, uh, scientists have been looking at this problem you know through a very narrow lens um, so if you think about uh, how in the past uh, we have been thinking about this problem you know we have been thinking about for example focusing on telomere attrition which is you know the erosion of the of the telomeres in the in the chromosomes uh, some other people have been just uh, only focusing on uh, senescent cells uh, mitochondrial dysfunction so uh, they have been tackling this problem through a very very narrow space yes. what i think is happening right now uh, is really the integration of all these uh, what are now called the hallmarks of aging together with the implementation of uh, cutting edge cutting edge technology that is really really kind of uh, helping us uh, at a very fast pace understanding what aging means and let me tell you what aging means or aging is to me or how yeah. I look at the problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, obviously, as I said, it's a very complex phenomenon uh, that still we uh, are far from understanding. Uh, but fundamentally, what I believe is happening as we grow old and as we get old is the fact that the epigenetic program of the cells changes uh, with time and it becomes dysfunctional with time. Uh, maybe maybe we should spend a couple of words in saying you know what the epigenetic program is, is yeah. so that you sure. know, everybody everybody understands it. Yes. So you 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 can think about that. You know, I always use the analogy of a language. Uh, so in every language, there is an alphabet, uh, which is you know the letters that we use, right? The alphabet in this case, in the case of the cells, are is the the sequence of bases that make up the the DNA in the cells then these letters can be put together into words. Now, in the analogy, the words are the genes, right? The genes that are turned on or turned off in some cells. And so how do you turn on and off these words, these genes? Well, that is thanks to the epigenetic program, which is, in a way, you can, you can think about that as the grammar, as the syntaxes of, of a language. So it's a set of rules that puts together in a meaningful fashion these words, so that so that now you have a you know a, an understandable sentence, for example. Okay, so let's get out of the analogy and let's take, let's talk about the cells. So the alphabet is the DNA, the words are the genes, and so cells that are genetically identical, meaning that they share, they have the same genetic code, for example, the cells in the brain or the cells in the liver, they are dramatically different in their function. Mm. Why? Thanks to the grammar, thanks to the epigenetic code that turns on in the brain cells a specific set of genes and turns off a specific set of genes. And in the liver, turns on a different set of genes and turns off a different set of genes. So all together, basically, this brings to kind of the uh, the, the the complexity of cell behavior. Now, what happens with time? It happens that this grammar, this set of rules becomes dysfunctional over time. And so it can happen that in the liver, in the brain, in the muscle, in the skin, genes that are supposed to be on are now silenced 
and genes that are supposed to be silenced become active. So uh, to me, I think that the fundamental linchpin, so the fundamental explanation of why we are aging is because this set of rules becomes faulty with time. The good news though, is that this program can be reset. So can be brought back to a functional youthful state because the epigenetic program is uh, 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 malleable, is plastic, is reprogrammable. And that's exactly what, what we're trying to do. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary work that you're doing. I look at changing epigenetics using, you know, diet and lifestyle. Um, and you're, you know, you're, you're, I think, perhaps use, doing something similar with the volume turned up and we're going to dive into it. I um, So folks, we will put, we'll link to a Hallmarks of Aging paper, actually one of the most recent ones to come out where the Hallmarks are now expanded and um, we have a blog on it as well. Um, so of the Hallmarks, you know, cellular senescence, you know, mitochondrial uh, changes, um, nidogesbiosis and, and chronic inflammation, like the, it's expanded the driver in your opinion are these epigenetic changes that happen yes they are the driver in my opinion and uh, most importantly I, th I think that for the sake of this discussion and for the sake of what we're trying to do i think that they are hierarchically dominant uh, over the other hallmarks what does it mean it means that uh, if we can repro since the epigenetic program is the fundamental program that controls a variety of different function in the cells if we can reprogram that program, then as a virtue of that, uh, as the you know uh, you know as a, as a consequence of that, we can really impact most, if not all, of the hallmarks of aging. And this is not just theory; we have proved this uh, multiple times across many different cell types. So uh, it is not science fiction; it is reality. That's awesome. And we, you know, again, people, there's a lot of publications coming out of um, Dr. Sebastiano's labs and we'll, uh, we'll link to those as well. So you can do your own drill down into, um, into the statement, into this really bold statement that, that he's making. Um, so I guess I have a couple questions. So one question is, and then of course, we're going to spend a lot of time getting into your technology uh, of the various epigenetic marks. Is there uh, what what are the ones that really stand up as as being drivers of the aging phenomena? So that's question one, and then you can fold it into question two. Are we looking at um, the aging uh, process, the changes to epigenetic uh, programming occurring in a predictable, programmed manner, which enables us to actually measure biological age by looking at DNA methylation patterns, you know, really reliably, um, or are we looking at like you know, epigenetic drift or damage just due to the wear and tear of life or both? Yeah, well, those are two excellent questions. <laughs> so let me let me unfold them. Uh, so the epigenetic program uh, is, a, is, a, is a collection of uh, different uh, types of uh, um, programs in the, in, in the cells. So for example, one of the most, the, one of the canonical epigenetic feature or epigenetic characteristics of the cells is the, uh, what is called the methylation of the DNA. So the DNA can be or cannot be methylated in specific regions. And as a function of that, uh, basically the gene expression changes uh, in different cells and in and uh, with time. But there is a number of other epigenetic features. For example, the way the DNA is uh, uh, three-dimensionally organized uh, in the nucleus, 
um, the DNA is also wrapped around some proteins that are called histones that can be modified themselves. Uh, and depending on the type of modifications, again, genes can be turned on or off. Um, the, the, these histones can also slide on the chromatin and depending on their position, again, they can impact gene expression. Uh, and there is a number of other things that I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm not mentioning right now, but collectively, you know, all these features uh, are referred to as epigenetic program. So that's where basically we are still far from understanding how these different pieces of the puzzle kind of all together come into place to explain why we age. Um, and I can tell you that right now we are kind of at the dawn of this, you know, of this very exciting uh, field. Uh, and uh, we are, for example, understanding very well how the methylation of the DNA is changing over time. Yeah. Uh, and a, a brilliant example of this, for example, is, is the fact that there, are, there is a number of people and labs and companies that are developing the so-called epigenetic clocks. Yes. So those are ways to quantitatively measure how and where these methylation changes happen with time, both as a predictive tool uh, to measure basically the chronological age. Well, chronological age is not so interesting because you know we, we all know, we are all aware of our chronological age, but the biological age is what, what really matters. So how far are we from our expected chronological age? Are we younger because we have you know, a very good lifestyle, a very good diet, uh, we exercise on a regular basis, we sleep well and so on and so forth? Or are we older than our chronological age? Because again, our lifestyle, sun exposure, stress, and so on and so forth is actually accelerating our biological clock of aging. So those are wonderful tools that are being utilized, you know, as predictors uh, of, of aging, but also, you know, they're starting to also be used as ways to really measure uh, how a specific intervention, dietary supplementation or, 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 or any uh, metformin, rapamycin, whatever it is, how that treatment impacts my biological age. Um, so that's kind of, you know, on the first, on the first, uh, you know, to answer your first question. So there is a lot of things to look at. We are starting to understand it. And we have a very, very good understanding right now of the methylation profile. Um, to come to the second question that I forgot now. <laughs> Just the, um, whether we're, so aging, the, the, the predictable change. So some of these changes that are happening on the yeah. methylome take, for example, are pretty mm -hmm. predictable. But yet we think that aging is also, you know, random or, yeah. I think, yeah, I personally think that it's a combination of both. Uh, yeah. So there is a deterministic uh, aspect uh, that is really, that can really be predicted and can be forecasted in a, in a, in a, in a way. Uh, and then there is, on top of that, there is also a random accumulation of epigenetic errors that are driven by fact by external factors, environmental environment. factors that could be again inflammation. Uh, some of those could be genetic. Uh, some of those could be dietary, uh, and so on and so forth. So it's and, and that what makes it exciting but complex also because it's yes. it's kind of the integration of two very complex phenomena. One is developmental, so is already preset in a way in our cells, which can be accelerated or delayed by the environmental factors that are kind of additive. Yeah. I think that our research um, 
looking at diet and lifestyle interventions, um, and we have shown some favorable influence on on D, on the methylome, is probably more in the camp of influencing those environmental exposures. Whereas the work that you're doing is you're diving into the heart of what would be the programmed. I mean, and maybe you're changing both, <laughs> you know, the environmental, the, well, you are, the influence of those environmental exposures, you know, plus this programmed aging phenomena. And in so doing, you know, you're really able to turn back uh, the clock and we're, we'll dive into that, but, it, and, and I want to, but before we do, I, I'm curious, just given your background, how you ended up here, you know, as a scientist. So you're, you're um, teaching at Stanford in, in uh, obstetrics and gynecology. And I, mean, I imagine this has something to do with the wildly exciting epigenetic time in embryogenesis, but yeah, how, how did you get here? Yeah, I think that that's I, I got here. Uh, I have to say, really thanks to uh, the training that I had uh, in uh, a field that seems to be completely disconnected <laughs> from from what I'm doing right now, but it, which it, it is not in reality. So I come from. Uh, uh, so my training has always been uh, in uh, in development uh, and in reproductive biology. Uh, so I have always been fascinated by how, for example. Uh, sperm and an egg come together and they make, uh, you know, in this magic process, a new form, yes. a new life. Uh, of course, I was looking when I was younger, I was looking at that, you know, really from a hardcore developmental biology standpoint. So I was really fascinated about how is it possible that these two specialized cells uh, that's, uh, you know, come together, all of a sudden they become something completely different and they have all the information to basically develop an entire new uh, body with trillions of cells that are coming from one single cell. So that that for me has always been like really mind boggling and I've always been excited and fascinated by that. Uh, and so I've been studying, you know, how sperm and eggs uh, form, uh, how human development uh, unfolds uh, and, and so on. But then, you know, about in 2000, at the end of 2014, I had this kind of epiphany all of a sudden, <laughs> and I said, "Well, wait a minute," uh, because I became interested, you know, in the in the aging field. And I said, "Wait a minute," but nature has already figured out uh, how not to age. Why? Well, it's a very simple thing that was really like in front of my eyes, and I haven't, I didn't see it before. And I started thinking about the fact that uh, aging doesn't get vertically transmitted across generations, right? It, I mean, we're not, right. as babies, we're not inheriting the age of our parents, no. right? Right. At every generation, uh, you know, babies are born at age zero. And then they right. age over time. But then, you know, their children are going to be, again, age zero. Right. right. And if you think about that, you know, that's not true, true only, you know, within every single species, right? It, you know, if, if you think about that, you know, in a more philosophical and holistic way, life hasn't aged on our planet from the very first form of life that formed, you know, 3.6 plus billion years ago, all the way up to, up to us. And so that means that nature has already figured out a way to prevent aging broadly speaking, from happening in life. 
The question though, is that it's doing it through a very, very uh, um, um, form, which is reproduction, right? Uh, which is again, going back to where I come from, which is you know how egg and sperms come together and then they form a new, a new life and so on and so forth. And so to make a long story short, I really realized that uh, nature has already figured it out and we, it has figured it out, obviously, from, from an evolutionary standpoint. What we need to do now is to understand those processes and apply them to cells that are not embryonic, that are not germ cells, but that are the cells that make up our own, our own bodies, that are programmed to, that, to die, of course, to age and to die. But mm. we can basically hijack those principles that prevent aging from being vertically transmitted and utilize those principles and apply them to the, the other cells of the body that do age and do become dysfunctional. And this is, I mean, we know from Waddington, I guess, of course, like this is the ultimate epigenetic puzzler. So you must've been really kind of positioned with your background in reproductive biology to be just, of course, you're going to be leaning into epigenetics as the answer yeah. to the aging phenomena, because that's What's happening? Like cell differentiation. I mean, first of all, we're scrubbing clean the information from mom and dad via exactly. epigenetics and then laying down new epigenetic programming. Exactly. You are, you are actually absolutely nailing it. Uh, uh, this uh, wiping out of this, this epigenetic information happens at a massive scale in the embryos in the first two or three days of development. And it also happens in germ cells, you know, as we as we grow older, uh, and that rewiring of the information is required to cancel or to erase the information that is coming from the previous generation and to set up a new information in the new uh, kind of generation. So it's happening massively across the entire genome. Now the question is: now that we understand how aging happens epigenetically in our genome, we can utilize that information that we are learning from embryos and from germ cells, and we can just apply it to those parts of the genome that are changing and that are becoming older and epigenetically dysfunctional with time. So it's basically a matter of taking an incredibly functioning and performing machinery and just focusing it and repurposing it to very specific parts of the genome that are the parts of the genome that age and become dysfunctional with time. Let me ask you, <laughs> I just have to pick your brain. You know, I don't have a reproductive biology biologists on my podcast that often, but like when we go, just going back to, you know, embryogenesis and scrubbing it clean, I, I just have two questions, three questions. One is, are we looking at methylation and demethylation as sitting in the driver's seat of these? I'm curious, just based on my own reading, um, seems to seems to be. Um, and uh, according to Hoare, we don't lose everything. There's some information retained, and this would be this would be the heritable aspect of of the epigenome, right? We, we, we can, and, and, and we've, we've seen this in, in like say the Dutch hunger winter or, 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 or the overcalyx cohort where, where there's generations of information that have been transmitted epigenetically. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Those I'm, I'm curious your thoughts there. There is, there is definitely a component that is also epigenetically heritable. Absolutely. 
uh, and but but again, the good thing is that the epigenetic information, even though some of it could be heritable, mm -hmm. can still be reprogrammed and be reset in the in the uh, in the in the in the new generation in the new cells, yeah. and that's and that's because the epigenetic program also is very responsive and it changes very dynamically in response to the environment. It was actually built for that reason. Uh, so the lower organisms don't have an epigenetic program, you know, they, they and that's why, you know, they're, they're, they have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, capabilities, for example, in, in generating massive amount, or in, in replicating, for example, but every time there is an environmental change, you know, they very, you know, they, 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 they cannot respond very, very effectively to those changes. Uh, and then, you know, you, you may have some, some, some species that just, you know, vanish. Because yeah. of that, you know, starvation or 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 UV UV exposure and so on. The epigenetic program was built evolutionary in our cells to be very very capable of dynamically responding to those environmental changes that can happen very frequently in nature. Uh, and so, by virtue of that, uh, they they can they are very dynamic, but they can also be reprogrammed, uh, you know, very very efficiently if we know how to do it. And that's exactly what we're trying to do here. Is do you think? You know, do you think that the like of the epigenetic marks that we've been discussing, I mean, they all are hugely important, but again, methylation and demethylation are pretty front and center during that time. Yeah, for, for now, for two reasons. Well, first first of all is because methylation is the, the, the epigenetic information for which we have the better understanding. Yeah. And so, of course, you know, we 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 can uh, we can also understand much better the consequences of of changing that profile um, mm -hmm. uh, as as the technology grows and as we uh, develop new technology that can actually give us information about the other epigenetic features. Of course, yes. those are going to be integrated in the future. Yes, and th those could also be opportunities actually to develop even new technology that are yes. actually tackling other other types of uh, still epigenetic uh, reprogramming uh, technologies, but of course that they tackle different different a types. different angle. Oh, it's, it's ridiculously interesting. Well, I can imagine in 2014, you know, your head was on fire with that epiphany <laughs> that you could begin to like tease <laughs> tease away. I was absolutely on fire at the same time, you know, every time, unfortunately, that, you know, you have something that has an enormous potential and, you know, nobody had really thought about before. It also comes with a lot of challenges, unfortunately, because there's, uh, you know, at the beginning, you are kind of looked at as a kind of a weirdo <laughs> who's coming with this, uh, you know. But, uh, you know, it's uh, I can say that uh, a few years back after I can say that, you know, the idea and the hypothesis was correct. Uh, and and yes. I'm pleased to see that it's actually exploding. It as is a, exploding. You know, yeah. So were you at Stanford at that time? Were you? Yeah. yeah. And so you were able to actually begin to tease apart aging as an epigenetic phenomena back in 2014. That would would that I guess would have been been the beginning of the development of era. What you're now calling era is that is that correct? That is correct. Um, so can you talk about what era is now? Of course, you know I I I know you'll talk about this in a minute, but you've you're using some kind of a Yamanaka uh, variation. Um, when did when did Yamanaka when did when were the Yamanaka like where does that in the timeline 
um, when were when when did were those characterized, and you know when did did we realize we could reverse? But I'm I'm curious about you know what I, I mean. Just talk about what you did. I guess I'll just yeah. leave it open. So um, yeah, me, me, um, so Yamanaka uh, published his uh, seminal work in 2006 uh, in mouse, and then the year after in 2007 uh, in uh, in human in human cells. And uh, uh, basically, to to very you know to simplify what he did, uh, what what he he showed was that it is possible to turn to take any cell of the body, for example, a skin cell. And by expressing in this cell a set of factors, a set of proteins, uh, you can basically um, change uh, that skin cell and uh, uh, make it become an embryonic-like cell. So this was this was you know like a remarkable a remarkable finding that of course you know was uh, received the, the Nobel Prize in two thousand and twelve. Uh, and uh, wh why why is it so important? It's it's very important because now now you can you can really create uh, uh, from from any cell of the body you can create this uh, this group of cells that are embryonic like instead of instead of using embryos to make them you are yeah. using somatic cells so the cells of the body to make them uh, and now these cells are well they can be grown indefinitely but most importantly they can now redifferentiated into any cell of the body so you start from a skin cell you end up with an embryonic like cell these cells are called ips and now these cells can become the skin cell you started with but also any other cell of the body brain cell liver cell skin cell muscle cells and so on and so forth so why is it so important because now you can create virtually any organ ex novo and these organs now are genetically matched with uh, with me because I used I utilized you know my skin cell to to you know to derive the IPS. Uh, and so uh, Yamanaka utilized a cocktail of factors. Uh, he didn't discover the factors themselves, uh, but he boiled down basically uh, this process uh, through uh, to a, a subset of uh, four factors. Oct4, SOX2, KLF4, and CNIC. So these are the canonical Yamanaka factors uh, that again can make this, uh, this transition uh, happening. So what he did not realize right away was that the fact that by making the IPS, so these embryonic-like cells, these embryonic-like cells, yes, now they can they can be used to generate any 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 organ in the body, as we just said, but they are also youthful by all means, you know, they're almost age zero. So yeah. by doing this process of reprogramming, he was changing basically the identity of the cells. So again, turning a skin cell into an embryonic cell, uh, embryonic-like cell. But he was also making an aged cells into a very, very youthful cell because embryonic cells are youthful by all means. Yeah. So in 2014, again, uh, thanks to the fact that I was working with IPSCs and, and, and among other things, the hypothesis and the question that we had was like, well, maybe these two processes that are happening simultaneously, maybe they can be decoupled. So we could achieve rejuvenation without changing the identity of the cells. Uh, so what does this mean? It means that maybe I can simply by tuning and tweaking that process of reprogramming, and we do this, you know, uh, through dosage, uh, dosage duration and so on, we mm -hmm. can start with a skin cell, 
and end up with this with a skin cell again so not an embryonic but a skin cell but a younger version of the skin cell so that was exactly the our the, the question that we had so is it possible to tweak and tune yeah. the reprogramming process so that we change the age but we don't change the identity of the cells and now almost 10 years after we can say that you know yes absolutely it is possible we can rejuvenate the cells we we still have the same cell type uh, but it's a younger you know we have a younger version of that cell type um i just i want to just you know exclamation point and just underline the extraordinary achievement of you know your epiphany and your you know work and and diligence in this it's very 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 exciting so so yamanaka took the somatic cells everybody and brought them all the way back to pluripotent stem cell inducible pluripotent stem cell solder so completely de-differentiated and i know when they were experimenting with sort of creating uh you know growing from these stem cells that you know cancer occurred there was some pretty negative fallout from taking them all the way back there and then attempting to uh, create an organ or, 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 I mean, you know better than I do, but I am aware that the fallout was tumorigenesis and, and some pretty crazy stuff. And so, I mean, it certainly makes sense that you, that, that you would be thinking, I don't, you know, could we actually do this, <laughs> you know, less extreme. Um, and I think also you guys were the first to demonstrate this in 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 human cells, right? And are you still? I mean, you you were the first, but has it has it been done elsewhere? Uh, uh, yes, we were the first. Since... To show, we were the first to show that it works in human cells. There was a paper uh, before us that actually showed it in mice, and it showed it in uh, in a genetic model uh, of accelerated aging uh, in in mice. Uh, um, but yes, we absolutely, we were the first ones to show it in human cells. Uh, and I have to say that uh, uh, we are still probably among the few, there's really very few people that are working with, with human cells. Um, most of the work is being conducted in, uh, in mice and in other animal models. Uh, but I am, I am honestly, I'm a big believer, although, although I, I, you know, I often make my, my life miserable because, of course, we, <laughs> uh, working with human cells is much more complicated for a number of reasons. Uh, but uh, I actually want to make sure that what uh, I see is directly uh, implemented or, or potentially, you know, directly implemented, implemented or implementable uh, in the in the clinic. What does awesome. this mean? It means yeah. that uh, I have seen way too many uh, studies uh, and uh, instances where something phenomenal that was working in animal models uh, then doesn't translate. Doesn't translate in in human. And and yeah. I'm not saying I'm not saying that those studies shouldn't be done. Those studies are absolutely fundamental to understand the biology, uh, the mm -hmm. complex biology. Uh, but there's plenty of examples of things that work greatly in animal models, and then they don't work in human in the human context. This episode is supported by Practice Better, a leading all-in-one practice management platform. Most health and wellness professionals love what they do, but feel overwhelmed with time-consuming administrative tasks. With Practice Better, you can automate tasks like onboarding, scheduling, charting, nutrition planning, and billing to help you better focus on the parts of your practice you love. New Frontiers listeners get 20% off the first four months of any paid plan at practicebetter.io with code KF20. 
Visit the podcast page on drkarafitzgerald.com for more information. I want to accelerate this, uh, this, uh, this process, and I really want to make sure that whatever I'm doing really has an impact uh, for, for the life of people. And I think really that the only way, in particular, because now the technology allows for that, because we have learned how to culture the human cells, we have learned how to make organoids from human cells. So there is a lot of, of human models that, of course, are, are not perfect, but they're much better, for example, than many other uh, animal models. And so what I'm trying to say here is that uh, we, we, we decided to take the long path, but we decided really to develop something that could really be uh, concrete and tangible uh, for clinical translation. And because I, at the end of the day, what I really care about is really make this affordable, accessible, uh, and, uh, you know, for everybody. I want this to be a democratized uh, form of medicine that can really impact the life of people, which is what I care about. And so, yes, uh, it's difficult. Uh, it's challenging. But I think it's the only way to to, to do it, in my opinion. Wow, it's <clears throat> just get bravo, just extraordinary for sticking sticking to it until you uh, you were able to demonstrate it. <laughs> and you took, I think, skin cells of somebody in their fifties, I believe, and reversed them to equivalent of twenties. Is it was was that what you did? Yeah, talk about what you did. And I just want to circle back for the, my listeners to say that this was when you demonstrated epigenetics were in fact influencing all of the hallmarks. Right? This would have been teasing that out. Okay. Yeah. No. So we worked with a variety. So we we published our work in twenty twenty, and then you know we we have done we have now expanded dramatically the 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 the, the our studies. So we always try when possible to work with um, older, older cells. So mm -hmm. in the paper that we published, we have worked with skin cells, we've worked with other cell types, uh, uh, chondrocytes, which are the cells of, of the cartilage, the muscle cells. And we have always tried to work with cells that are at least uh, uh, over 65 or, or coming from, from people oh, okay. that are at least over 65. Uh, in some cases, even uh, you know 80 or 90 years old. Wow. Wow. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, and again, since then, we have worked with a variety of other cell types, eye cells, muscle cells, skin cells, uh, mesenchymal stem cells. All blood. in humans. Human. All, all humans. All humans. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, as, as much as we can, we try to work with older cells because, again, uh, the aging process that happens when you are 40 or 50 is very different from the age of, you know, the aging process that, you know, you, you experience when you are uh, six, uh, 17, 80, or, or 90, right. uh, as, as, as I think most, most of the people are <laughs> very aware of. Um, and so, um, yeah, we, we try, and, and it, yeah, we, we have been working with very old cells, and we, we always try to, to work holistically, again, to go back to one of the, the earlier, earlier questions, we always try to look holistically at uh, every single hallmark of aging. So every time we do our intervention, we try to see uh, in as many ways as possible to prove that the cells are still the same cells you started with, mm -hmm. but youthful and more functional. Because again, cells age and they age across most of the hallmarks of aging. Of course, you know they're very different in this process depending on the cell type you're dealing with, but they don't age only for one single hallmarks. They, they, they age across many different hallmarks. 
And we always consistently see that when we do our uh, approach, so when we bring in our era factors, mm -hmm. the cells are youthful now, not just because of one hallmark, but because of every single hallmark that has changed in that specific cell type with, with time, with age, which is again, speaking about the remarkable power and potential of this technology, and also about the fact that the epigenetic program, again, can be a fundamental uh, kind of uh, tune that we can use and utilize to rejuvenate the cells, uh, you know, comprehensively and holistically. Really interesting. That's just, it's so exciting to me. I mean, it's just beyond. Um, I heard, you know, I was listening to you recently talk about addressing cancer by reversing the biological age of T cells, you know, and then they can get busy in uh, eliminating, you know, the, 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 the cancer process. I mean, that's, I mean, the implications of your work are crazy. I mean, just maybe, so yeah, you're starting with skin and anybody who's in there, you know, who's getting older is excited about that. I mean, you can, you think about that, you know, sort of from a surface level, but you're doing all of this, you know, you're looking at this in many different skin types, in, in many different cell types and, and the implications of all of them are just kind of breathtaking. Yeah, because uh, I, I think that ERA is agnostic when it comes to cell types and tissue types. Uh, so in principle, it can be applied to any cell type or any tissue type or any organ type, you know, in the in the body. Uh, okay. Obviously, the challenge is to is to really to identify, you know, that window of intervention yes. that is that is crucial for retention of cell identity, but, you know, for rejuvenation. Uh, and in the case of, the, of what you were mentioning, like in, in that specific instance, um, uh, so we, we are dealing with immunotherapy. So, um, uh, which is which is a technology that is being implemented by you know in, by many companies. So it's basically the immunotherapy is a way to take uh, uh, your own blood cells, the T cells. Uh, engineer them so that they can now uh, recognize the tumor and kill it selectively. What happens, and this is a function of age for sure, but it's not necessarily a function of chronological age. What happens is that during this process of isolation, expansion, engineering, and manufacturing of the cells, the cells become aged, they become uh, exhausted. That's the term that is used in the, in the field. So they become fatigued. And so once you reinfuse them back into the body, they are not as uh, powerful and as fit and as functional as they should be in killing the cancer. So they have an enormous potential of doing it, but again, they are in a way exhausted in doing in doing so. So this is a perfect example of where ERA can kind of you know uh, orthogonally intersect. And uh, since ERA, quote unquote, impacts the aging phenomenon of of age uh, of cells and can. Re bring that bring back uh, the, the 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 age of a of a old uh, dysfunctional cell back to a youthful one. It's a perfect example where era can can really be nicely applied. And so you can make now these uh, exhausted cells youthful and uh, uh, functional 
uh, again, you can make them younger again. And so now you have, you know, kind of two, two, two things that are coming together, their ability to recognize and kill the cancer cell, but also their ability to not be exhausted and aged. And so they can just go and kill the cancer more effectively. And that's exactly what we're working on as well as a, as a way to really bring this amazing technology uh, to the fruition not just uh, not not just uh, you know to the fruition of very few people that use it as a last resort, but as a first in line yeah. uh, opportunity uh, that could really wipe out and could really impact uh, um, you know um, quality of life, cancer biology broadly. Speaking. I mean, bro yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we could look at potentially prevention. You know, before the need for you know, this kind of immunotherapy when the cancer is present. Um, and you've talked about that. And I, I I would like to talk about prevention. But before we get there, you know, just understanding a little bit now that we've, we've met, we talked about Yamanaka factors um, and, and some of the challenges and ERA is a, a different take on that. So I, so if you could distinguish them, I would, I would like that. And I know uh, you, certainly it, you know, it's not like we're going to all go out and take a, an era cocktail today. I mean, there's some challenges there. <laughs> I mean, cells respond differently and, you know, the dosage and the duration and also there's like there's massive variables. And so, you know, talk about that as well. What what era is and what some of the challenges to translating this to real time medicine are. So yeah, uh, ERA is basically again, the biology of ERA is really this idea of reprogramming the, the, the epigenetic profile. How do we do it? So basically what we do is to bring inside an age cell, a cocktail of mRNAs that then can encode for a specific protein. And these proteins now go into the nucleus of the cell, they reset the epigenetic landscape and they bring it back to this youthful and functional state. Now, uh, so this is kind of the, the, the biology of the, of the process. The real challenge is how do you bring this cocktail into the cells? Hmm. And you can think about this in two ways. Yeah. One way is, well, I first isolate the cells from, from my body, right? I, I treat the cells in a Petri dish, so in the laboratory, and then I reinfuse the cells back into the body. So this would be the idea behind the immunotherapy uh, that we just discussed. But our vision is to be able to rejuvenate the cells inside the, inside the body, without uh, you know, uh, prospectively isolating the cells and, and culturing them out, outside of the body. But this comes, so the potential here is enormous because again, we can go into the liver and make it younger. We can go into the brain, hopefully one day and make it younger. Uh, and you know, and, 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 you know the same for, is true for every organ, every, every tissue in the body. But the challenge is that how do I make sure that I specifically target some cells uh, in a, in a, in that organ or in that tissue, and that's exactly why you know Turn not only is working about era, so the biology of this process, but is also working on developing new ways to specifically target and deliver this cocktail of mRNAs inside the cells to make sure that we are targeting only one specific cell type or maybe more than one, but you know in a very very efficient and specific way. And this is a very challenging question. Really challenging. Uh, that, uh, uh, you know, again, technology now is developing. So I think, you know, there's going to be a, a lot of uh, remarkable uh, uh, findings in the, in the near future because there is a lot of people that are working on this. 
um, so the delivery is is really the challenge here. Uh, and, and we are working actually on making that uh, uh, precise and specific. So we are developing our own uh, lipids that can uh, encapsulate mm -hmm. and protect the mRNAs un uh, until they are outside of the cells and then being efficient in delivering the cargo, which is again, the mRNAs inside the cells. Into the correct organ. Exactly. And from a safety standpoint, so you were alluding about, you know, there are always obviously some safety risks associated with this. Yes, absolutely, there are. And the risks come from uh, the fact that if you don't know how to control in time and in dosage the expression of these factors, some of these factors may become, uh, quote unquote, carcinogenic. But the, really the key here- and Would that's that be a... because of too much de-differentiation? de-differentiation, like it would, they would exactly. just go too far back. Exactly, you will go too far back. And and uh, and that's where, uh, you know, the, the, the delivery technology, together with the understanding of the biology of the cells kind of come together nicely, because if you know how to specific, to deliver, uh, you know, the cargo in a specific cell type, you already know the biology of that specific cell type. And you know that that cocktail in that amount for that number of days is sufficient to rejuvenate but not to you know lead to cancer that's that's basically where where the the solution is and that's why we're working hard on that problem to on the one hand again target specific specific cell types in the body but also at the same time understanding very nicely and deeply the biology of those cells so that we can make sure that there is no loss of cell identity happening in this process you know, um, Sergey Young is a is a, a friend and colleague of mine who talks about the longevity bridge, and he, you know, he's a proponent for all the things you mentioned: eating right, getting enough sleep, exercising. You know, all of the things we can do today. You know, as we walk this longevity bridge, and we get to, you know, what you're proposing, because there's some time there. You yeah. know, I mean, there's there's some time involved before anybody. When you know. It's exciting to listen to David Sinclair and to see what he's doing over at Harvard with his various animal mo models playing around with aging. And uh, uh, I, I think I, I may have heard him actually say one time that he might take a Yamanaka cocktail, but it, it just doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, no. So um, yeah, there's some really clear hurdles and yet the, the potential is extraordinary. So rejuvenation, epigenetic re rejuvenation or biological age reversal is going to perhaps look different than say Aubrey de Grey, who thinks the first person who's gonna live to a thousand is a lot, you know, that we're going to just, you know, take this cocktail and become 30 years younger. Like that sounds listening to you, you know, like it's science fiction or, or is it not? I mean, is is it is it not? This is the first step. What you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't think it's science fiction, honestly. Uh, yeah. Of course, I think we need to also be a little bit down down to earth and not be kind of you know too bombastic about our you know. So uh, what, what do I mean by this? I think that era. Uh, first of all, I think that era not alone, but together with uh, many other types of of interventions uh, are actually gonna get us there are going to get us one day i don't know exactly when but are going to get definitely get a, get us to a point where we are really, really going to be able to to live yes longer lives but most importantly healthier lives okay this is what i think is really the the the, the point of what we are trying to do we are not impacting lifespan for the sake of living longer 
uh, we are impacting health span for for the sake of living uh, longer, healthier lives. Okay, yeah. so this is what what I think at, at least at least for me is important. I, I don't I don't find it so useful to to live until 150 years of age if my if my you know last 50 are going to be miserable because I am frail because I have all sorts of of issues right that's not yeah. the point the point is yeah I mean and that's really what we're seeing now we're not going to 150 but we're spending you know upwards of our final 20 years many of us with exactly. um, you know significant disease you know just real. Uh, quality of life, significant quality of life issues, you know, across the, across the globe. Yeah. So yeah, the, the whole point, the whole, the whole, uh, you know, task and goal that we have is really for now, try to impact the health span of uh, our current lifespan. Uh, and so making sure that, uh, you know, if, if I am at risk of developing heart disease, just as a function of age of the function that, you know, I become, uh, you know, older, and maybe I had a, a horrible lifestyle, uh, you know, in, uh, maybe I can fix that or I can prevent that from happening. And of course, I'm going to impact the lifespan, you know, for sure, because if I, I'm not dying, you know, of a heart attack, of course, I have, I have a, you know, an, a, a longer uh, expectancy of, of life. But really what matters here is, is to make sure that the quality of life is, is impacted. And so I don't develop frailty. Uh, I don't, uh, I'm not at risk of uh, pulmonary disease, dementia, uh, and so on and so forth. H how are we going to do it? So I think that we're going to do it in, a, in many different ways. Uh, ERA is definitely one of one of the ways. Uh, and so again, I, to go back to your question, I don't think that is science fiction in the sense that it's not going to happen. I think it's going to happen at some point that uh, uh, you know maybe we're gonna get you know have a diet, dietary supplementation of some sort that is going to really reboost. Uh, uh, kind of systematically and systemically uh, all our cells in the body. Uh, I don't think it's going to be the Yamanaka fact, uh, cocktail, honestly. I don't think that that's, gonna, that's not going to be to, to, to happen. <laughs> uh, but I think that's, uh, you know, again, ERA together with many senolytics uh, and many other interventions are going to get us to a point where we're going to live, you know, significantly longer and significantly, uh, you know, healthier lives. Isn't ERA kind of a next generation Yamanaka? I mean, you invoke... You're 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 you we're leaning on the Amanaka factors in what you're doing. Uh, well, right now we are using the the canonical Yamanaka factors plus two other factors that, uh, together with the other four, uh, elicit the highest degree of rejuvenation in the shortest amount of time. Again, to go back to the safety to the safety issue, if I can make sure that I can treat the cells for just a very small number of of times and days, but by using an expanded cocktail, I can actually get, uh, you know, a higher degree of rejuvenation with the with a minimum number of doses that impacts the efficacy, of course, but it also impacts safety dramatically. That, and, are are some of those other factors helping to just shut it down? Are they? All the factors are shut down because again, we are bringing in the mRNAs. So the mRNAs have a half life, so they hang around in the cells just for 16, 20 hours. Not, okay. not more than that. So you can prolong the expression of these genes if you keep giving these factors to the cells. But if you give them just once for, you know, just, just, one, or just one time, they are expressed for 16, 20 hours and then they're gone. But that time is sufficient for the proteins that they are encoding for 
to go into the nucleus and reset the epigenetic landscape, okay? So the cocktail that we are using right Amazing. now is, uh, it gives us that opportunity to really get a remarkable rejuvenation in a very short time. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't mean that the same cocktail uh, can, uh, could and should be used for every cell type. You know, we, we can right. optimize that cocktail in a, in yeah. a cell-specific manner. But in addition to that, we're also discovering other factors that in response to these factors are being turned on or off. And this is gonna give us a lot of leverage about, you know, maybe we can implement, we can optimize this cocktail with other factors, or we could replace some of the current factors in the cocktail with some other factors that maybe are just even more potent in doing, in doing so. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of discovery also that is happening that is super exciting. So exciting. It's really interesting. I would just want to say, you know, coming circling back to my community where we're thinking about nutrition and 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 things like that, you do need if you're going to rejuvenate something someone, you need the ingredients to be able to do the rebuilding. So we're not our world is not going to go away anytime soon. But it would be really fun to to sort of to partner in 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 helping, you know, something older you know, have the ingredients to actually enact the information that your work is providing. That's, that's kind of a kind of a cool idea for for me in my world. Um, well, you're at clinical trials, right? Uh, not yet. <clears throat> but are you are you near? We are near. Yes. So we are uh, having in the next uh, few days, we're going to actually have a, our first conversation with uh, with the FDA. Wow. Uh, so you know we this is this is new territory for the FDA so I think there's going to be a lot of you know very very uh, crucial uh, information exchange that is going to help them understand you know what this technology is all about but also help us understand how uh, from a safety standpoint and from an efficacy standpoint we should we should start thinking about the clinical trials um, so this is, we're very excited about that because I think this is going to be, um, you know, a very, very interesting and very uh, important conversation with the regulatory uh, agency. Um, and so, again, depending, depending also on other things, for example, funding, for example, you know, of course, the, we're not, we're not in a, in a super friendly uh, market environment at the moment, but yeah, uh, it's got to be wildly expensive. Yes. So there's, but we are very optimistic. And I think that if everything goes smooth, uh, we, we could really get to uh, a phase one clinical trial, which is a safety, uh, you know, uh, phase, uh, maybe by early 2025. Wow. Just yes. super exciting. All right. So let me just circle back to, you know, the work that you, you did in, in human skin cells and the fact that you're with Dior. I mean, are you like, thinking about topical delivery I, I i've heard you talk about microneedling once upon a time is that something that may move closer to to uh use in humans i mean mm -hmm. speak about that yeah i think so uh, definitely i mean again uh, we have to also deal with the fact that uh, there is there is uh, uh, some other technology that needs to be developed in the in the meanwhile that is going to complement what what we are doing uh, but speaking about the skin, you know, right now, the way we're thinking about this would be to deliver uh, into the skin uh, for um, kind of medical associated cosmetic issues to begin with, but maybe one day just, you know, cosmetically uh, to, to, to really bring the, the, these factors inside the skin, for example, through uh, microneedling, because it's that that's the technology that it has been developed. 
uh, it has a lot of history. There is a lot of knowledge about it. So that's the technology that we have available right now for the delivery or for the root of administration, I should, I should say. But yes, absolutely. We're also working on topical topical formulations that you know would, would not require any, any microneedling. It would, would just be a cream of some sort that could be topically applied. Uh, for example, in wound healing, yeah. uh, for example, right. you know. Or burns. Yeah, burns, exactly. Those, those are all phenomena or all indications that are severely impacted by aging. So the healing capacity yes. of each skin is dramatically, dramatically impaired, okay? So if we could accelerate the process, if we could make sure that, you know, the healing happens much faster and that also by doing so that the thickness of the skin becomes, you know, uh, thicker. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the skin becomes more resistant to, to pathogens. It becomes more resistant yes. to wear and tear. So yes. that has a lot of repercussions also on the future, right? Because, you know, at that point, the skin becomes more resistant to, to a variety of inflammation. It becomes more resistant to pathogens. Sure. So that means that there is no inflammation happening. And that means that there's no, no accelerated aging. So, you know, the, 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 the consequences of this could really be endless. Where where are you at in 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 that journey? Is that has that moved into any clinical trials? Not yet, but okay. again, we're act, we are actively working on preclinical studies right now, and we are developing to go back to the challenge of the of the delivery uh, technology. Where we are developing the, uh, for, um, topical formulations uh, that are going to be actually used for the delivery of mRNAs into the skin. Again, it sounds simple. It's not simple at all because the skin is one of the most complicated tissues in the, in the body. Interesting. Uh, and it comes with a lot of challenges, you know, from a chemistry standpoint. Uh, and, uh, so, but, but we're, we're trying to solve those, those challenges. And, and again, this can have a repercussion on, on a variety of different things because you can even think about delivering other types of genes in the skin, uh, to, to make it again more functional and you could even at some point start thinking about genetic correction of some skin diseases for example <clears throat> interesting you have talked about ovarian rejuvenation as mm -hmm. well and yes. this is an area like i think of particular interest for you speak about that and where you might where where you see era yeah, so ovarian rege regeneration and rejuvenation is actually one of the things that is really at my heart uh, because I think, uh, you know, personally, I want to, to really impact women's longevity and women's uh, health span. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, again, we have to think about the problem of aging uh, uh, from uh, in, in its complexity. Uh, and I, uh, to go back to what I said before, ERA is going to be definitely one of the solutions, uh, but it's not going to be the only solution. So one of the things that you know my lab is working on is uh, to really show that we could regenerate and rejuvenate the, the ovarian tissue through ERA, yes. So by, again, going in with the same cocktail of factors and bringing back the ovarian tissue in time uh, to the point where, you know again, it's, uh, it's youthful and functional, uh, but also through generating new ovarian tissues ex novo, for example, from, from IPS, from IPS mm -hmm. cells. Why is this important? For a very simple reason. Uh, the entrance in menopause is inversely correlated. The age of entrance in menopause is inversely correlated with the life expectancy and health. Mm. What does it mean? It means that the earlier a woman enters in menopause, the more likely is going to be that the lifespan is going to be shorter 
and the health span is going to be impacted, you know, from a cognitive standpoint and, you know, from a, from a health system, from a health uh, standpoint. I mean, just going back to the original conversation about, I'm sorry, I interrupted you, but save that, like about um, this programming, programmed aging phenomena, like menopause seems sort of like the classic evidence, you know, that something, you know, that this change will push us towards death in a very predictable way. Exactly. And it's an accelerated uh, aging phenomenon that happens post-menopause. Yeah. But in addition to this, I think there is there is a, a, a quite a significant number of women of women that enter menopause, not when they are, you know, in their in their late 40s, but they enter menopause when they are in their early 40s or maybe in their 30s or in their yes, 30s yes, yes. because of a pre, pre, premature ovarian failure or premature ovarian uh, insufficiency. So now we have a number of women that are very young that experience accelerated aging because of loss of functionality of the ovarian tissue. Uh, so we can make an impact. We could potentially make an impact. And if we could extend the, the, the functionality of the ovarian tissue for much longer, we could actually give them an opportunity actually to at least to age in a in a quote unquote physiological physiological manner, right? And not to accelerate, you know, their their process of, of, of aging. But again, yeah. you know, broadly speaking, you can apply this potentially to any uh, woman and you could really make a yeah. significant impact on the health span. Yeah. Extraordinary. I mean, that's a key leverage point in women because what the ovaries do is so impactful globally i mean the central nervous system brain health heart health you know bone density exactly. <laughs> muscle i mean and on and on it's kind of, it's extraordinary so so starting there could be a really appropriate entry point into um bringing era wow and having just really a, a global rejuvenating effect by only a, needing to address a single organ yeah, and that's 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 actually interesting what you are saying because again, I don't think, at least in the short term, I don't think that we necessarily need to think about having the, uh, you know, long life elixir, you know, that we are going to to drink <laughs> younger. Maybe just by working on on a number of of subsets of of, of yeah. tissues, we can have this systemic global effect. Uh, but just by doing one simple thing, which is you know targeting <laughs> one one organ at a time. That's very cool. I want to just, I mean, we need to wrap up here, but I have about 20 more questions, but no, um, I just, I, I wanted to talk about telomeres. So telomeres are, are one of the hallmarks, telomere attrition, one of the hallmarks, but you know, what you've seen in your research is that if, if, if you're elongating telomeres, you're actually hitting cell dedifferentiation. It's like, it would be a bad sign in your work. And, 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 and I think that you've said that our focus on telomeres may, may be misdirected. Can you just speak to that? I mean, I mean, in our, you know, it's one of the, it's it's one of the things that comes to mind first and foremost when we're thinking about longevity. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a good question. Let, let me clarify what I, what I mean. Um, so um, so for for example, there, there is there is an existing technology right now that is thinking about. Uh, for example, through the mRNAs to, to bring inside the cells the gene that is responsible for the elongation of the telomeres um, as, as a solution to, as a possible solution to aging. Uh, I think that that's definitely one of the weapons that we have in our arsenal 
to tackle the problem of aging. So I I don't I don't mean that we shouldn't be looking at that and that that is that is dangerous on, on its own. Like for our like like for our factors, I think that if you can control that process and you can make sure that you just temporarily elongate the telomeres, but then you don't overdo it because if you overdo it, then the cells become you know uh, carcinogenic. I think that that's a splendid idea, and I think that that people should should be pursuing and you know uh, following up with with that idea. Um, what I what I what I mean though is that the telomere attrition is not, is just one of the many different things happening with age, mm -hmm. uh, and so it's it's it does alone doesn't explain why we age, uh, and telomere attrition is a phenomenon that primarily impacts cells that become senescent, uh, which is again a subset of cells that is only maybe making, explaining 1% to 5% of the cells that we have in our body as, as we age. Uh, and so solving the problem of telomere attrition is important, but again, it's going to affect only a small number of cells and is not going to have such a dramatic impact uh, comprehensively on the, on the process of aging. So that's what I mean. So there may be a subset of people who, yeah. for whom that would yield, yeah. you know, benefit, you know, worthy of the intervention. Exactly. And, and to, and to, to explain why I, in our case, we do not see telomere elongation and why we think it's, 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 it's good for us Yeah, is because, uh, so during the process of reprogramming, the gene that is responsible for elongating the telomere becomes active when you are you know, far away in the process of reprogramming. So when the cells are almost about to become IPS. Mm. So the okay. reason why we don't want to see telomere elongation happening in our, in our case is because if we do, that would mean that the cells would have lost their identity and they would become carcinogenic. But that doesn't mean that together with our cocktail, we can bring in, again, temporarily, the gene that is responsible for, for, for telomere elongation, but just making sure that it's expressed for a very short time and not for, for, for much longer, if it makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. I guess I'm just not, I don't know that I'm as convinced that that would yield, you know, I mean, I'm, it's not my field. <laughs> you know, I'm just like an, an armchair opinion generator over here. Like it might not, it, I mean, I'd rather have my ovaries rejuvenated with an era cocktail. <laughs> anyway, I, although I guess we could do both. It, it'll be interesting to pay attention to that as that technology, as, as they actually do telomere elongation and, and to see what, you know, what outcomes occur with that. Um, listen, it was just been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for your time and 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 your your ability to explain in really plain language and bring this this field alive. And I appreciate your commitment to this work and you know your passion around making the world a better place for all of us and making it affordable. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, this is really what what drives me, what what you know gets me up uh, you know in the morning. I really hope that this is going to be really something that everybody, everybody can, can utilize, you know, at some, at some point, uh, because I, I'm really a big believer of, you know, democratization of, of medicine. And I, I really hope that this is going to be uh, applicable to, to, to anybody with no, no distinction, you know, in terms of who can afford it or, or not. Uh, yeah. So, and thank you. Thank you actually for, for giving me this, this opportunity, because it, I think it's important that the information gets out there and people are aware. Yeah. 
aware of it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Dr. Sebastiano, uh, welcome again. Thank you for coming to New Thanks. Frontiers. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, New Frontiers listeners. So when I finished my conversation with Dr. Sebastiano, I realized I had a lot more questions for him. I was grateful he was willing to hop on a call with me and chat through these additional thoughts. So what follows is a deeper drill down into the science, but it's incredibly interesting. For example, why did he choose to focus his research using human cell lines and human tissue rather than an animal model? Is this uh, more translatable into uh, human application? The answer he believes is yes, and he's nearing FDA approval to start clinical trials. So listen to that. The other huge question that we covered, uh, among other things, was whether or not epigenetics is the root of aging um, or is focusing on epigenetic changes, manipulating DNA methylation and so forth, the most effective entry point into reversing aging. So listen to what he has to say about this. I think that you'll be incredibly interested in it. I'm grateful for his time. And really, this is one of my favorite podcasts of the year. Thanks so much. So you're a part of the Biomarker of Aging Consortium, which I think I'm I'm I'm, I'm excited about. You're going to have a meeting, I think, you're the, the first meeting, if I'm not mistaken, in December at the Buck Institute. Um, can you, are, are there, I know you're, you're obviously DNA methylation clocks are in there because Horvath's a part of it, but like, what are you guys thinking about in terms of pulling together biomarkers and any that you can mention? Oh, of course. Yeah. Well, the, the, the initiative of the Biomarkers of Aging Consortium uh, was put together by, by a postdoc actually in my, in my lab. Uh, his name is uh, Madi Mokri. Uh, and he's really the the heavy lifter uh, and the spearheader of the of this whole initiative. And the idea came all about. Uh, and he's also he's actually a shared postdoc between my lab and uh, Vadim Gladyshev's lab, who's who's okay. also a PI that's working in the space of of biomarkers. The idea came all about by considering the the the, the fact that uh, there is a lot of different uh, clocks out there. Uh, I think there's now more than, than 20, just, just uh, about the, the methyl methylation clocks. But there is a number of additional clocks that are being developed, transcriptional clocks, uh, metabolomic clocks, uh, proteomic clocks, uh, and so on and so forth. So there is, there is a lot of uh, interest in the field by many investigators to really develop new quantitative methods to really assess um, in a very kind of tangible and measurable way, uh, what aging means on the one hand, but also in particular now that we are, I think, at an inflection point, how rejuvenative interventions, for example, you know, any kind of rejuvenative intervention from, from exercise uh, to uh, diet uh, to caloric restriction or metformin or, or epigenetic reprogramming of aging. So what, what is the impact of any of those interventions on the biological age? So what, 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 what do they do to the, to the biological age of, of an individual? And uh, so we basically, we came, we came to, the consider to, to the idea that, well, again, there is a lot of different clocks and they're all absolutely, well, not all of them, you know, some more than others, but they're definitely all very useful tools to, to measure aging at the cellular level, um, 
but they are not necessarily always good in capturing uh, the effect of regenerative interventions, right? So, and we have demonstrated, so we have a paper now, we have a study under revision, and we have seen that if you look, if you utilize different regenerative interventions and you, you utilize the same clocks, you see that there is, th those, those interventions are actually acting on the epigenome in different ways. So some interventions affect some parts of the genome and some other interventions affect some other part of the genome. So, but the question is, what does that mean from, from, a, from a clinical standpoint? Does that really translate into enhanced health span, enhanced lifespan? So what, what does that mean? So to make a long story short again, uh, we really realized that, well, first of all, a lot of clocks, different clocks, uh, and there was not a unifying uh, uh, consensus about which of those should be primarily used? Uh, should they be all combined into one super clock of some sort? So, uh, and, and, and in particular, like I think there is really right now the need to also kind of inform the FDA and kind of really make them available, uh, aware that, well, sooner or later, these interventions are going to become practice in some somehow. So how do you measure um, effectively and quantitatively the effect of I you know any of those uh, on on the biological age of of people. So yeah, that's 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 the spirit behind the initiative, and uh, the, the consortium is doing a great work in this regard, uh, and is trying to put together right now like all the people that are involved in this in this field uh, to try to come up to a consensus. We we published a, a paper in Cell, a review in Cell, very recently to kind of first of all come up with a consensus language about what aging means, what a rejuvenation is. Yes, yes. Uh, because we still lack, we still lack, you know, kind of a, a, a common ground, yes. you know, uh, and different people think about this in, in different ways. So. Totally. Like what is aging? And, and, you know, I know scientists get in a flutter when you say you've reversed it, like just using that term. And I think that, you know, I think mm -hmm. Matt Caberlin is sort of a big advocate for, I, I, I could be mistaken, so I don't want to, but there are, that we're, we're, we haven't reversed. Certainly there are some scientists who come from that, but then, you know, what, what are you doing in your lab? I, I'm assuming this is something that you're going to be grappling with, the, defining these granular terms and then yeah. measuring. But we also know, let me ask you this, that um, those, the clocks, so I have two questions for you regarding the clocks. Um, Clocks can behave differently depending on tissue type. So biological age, as you talked about in your own research, like, I mean, what's happening in the brain versus what's happening in, you know, an immune cell, et cetera, et cetera, that can vary. Are the clocks surrogate markers of what's happening or are they actually capturing the phenomena, the aging phenomena? Are they just reflective or, yeah. So, so you you're saying, uh, in other words, are they are um, are those changes that we see with the clocks correlate or 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 causative of of, of aging? So, um, well, the clocks, as I said, the clocks are very very useful tools actually to measure aging today. Okay, but they have uh, a couple of fundamental limit limitations, uh, and that's I think the reason why we need to develop new types of of clocks, or or probably not clocks. You know, we 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 have one. We, we call it index. Uh, well, first of all, the clocks uh, are pretty much algorithms that uh, are trained on uh, a specific cell type. Okay, and they're trained not only on a specific cell type, but they're also trained on on uh, 
how that specific cell type ages over time. Yeah, okay. And so what they do in, in, in simple words is that they look, uh, uh, they, they try to extrapolate from, from, uh, from those cell types, uh, from the methylation of those cell types. They extrapolate uh, through machine learning uh, algorithms a subset of <clears throat> bases in the DNA that change, uh, meaning that they either get hypermethylated over time or hypomethylated over time. And so basically they extrapolate that information. And uh, at the end of at the end of the day, what they do is just, you know, they really end up looking at only in the best case, only maybe at 400 base pairs or 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 so. Mm-hmm. In the worst case, uh, you know, just just a handful of base pairs. And so basically what, what they do is just, they, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, trying to simplify a very complex image and try to really kind of zoom in into a, a very tiny little uh, pixel of, yes. that, of that image. And that pixel basically is, is good in the sense that, you know, it really gives you a very a remarkable uh, and, repro- and reproducible way uh, to say, oh, okay, this cell type is age X, and this other cell, the same cell type, you know, from an older individual is now age Y. But the problem is that, well, it needs to be trained on a specific cell type. And so that means that when you use the same clock in other cell types, it may not work as well. Sure. Because again, it's been trained on that on that cell type. So that's the first limitation. And that's the reason why there's multiple clocks now that are being developed. The second limitation is that uh, uh, I think it's a, it's, it, uh, it, it gives, despite being very helpful, uh, it's looking at such a tiny little fraction of the information, you know, of the whole information that is really giving you a very kind of blurred image uh, or, or, you know, of the, of the whole, of the whole picture, right? Uh, it's it's again it's like looking at you know you, you're you're in a you're in a museum right you're in front of a you're in front of a of a portrait and instead of looking at the whole portrait you're just looking at one tiny little yeah. pixel of it right it can be very informative but it doesn't give you the whole the whole complexity of the and so that's the reason why I think we really need to develop new clocks because it, uh, sorry and the third limitation that I should mention is that since they have been built on aging. It doesn't necessarily mean that now with rejuvenative intervention we're going to see a reversion of that clock in the same, uh, you know, in the in the reverse uh, uh, orientation. Why? Because the the different rejuvenative interventions may be may be doing yeah, different things dancing around elsewhere. Of it. And those parts of the gene that are changing may not be necessarily captured by the clock that has been built for a different purpose. And so, so this could be why that calorie study that came out it didn't move any of the clocks. It only moved the pace. So that's it. It's not that those clocks are limited. No, it, it doesn't mean that it's not doing anything to the genome. It's actually doing a lot, but the yes. ca- clocks cannot capture that information right, 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 right. because they have been built for a different reason. Right. So we don't want to throw that intervention out by a long shot. Exactly. Fascinating. Okay. What clocks are you using? Like, what do you find work in your lab? Yeah, so we we in our study originally we used the original the the Horvath's uh, mm-hmm. uh, clock. Antistry. We actually we actually used two different ones, and in both cases we saw rejuvenation. Yeah, but that's that's a that's an interesting question, Cara, because actually when we start digging and and we did see rejuvenation, you know, by X number of years. Um, 
But that's an interesting question because when we start digging a little bit deeper into, into the data and we, and, we, and we ask ourselves to go back to your question, like are these changes correlate of aging or are they causative of aging? So can those changes in the clocks really tell us something about the biology of the cells or they just change with age, but they have nothing to do with, with it, you know? Yes, right. So we started digging into that and we saw that the rejuvenation effect that we were seeing with those clocks were explained in both of the cell types that we looked at just by one single base pair in the genome. <laughs> and that's that's incredible because you know I was expecting again uh, really changes across the whole genome and what the clock was saying was that the rejuvenation that I was that I saw in my cells was due to the fact that one one base pair was changing, and that that wow. change was so heavy in the clock. Oh, wow! And I said, "Well, okay, like just great. one methylation site, like literally a single yeah so red lollipop." <laughs> that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that there there were thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of changes happening in the cells, but mm -hmm. the clock was capturing yep. only that one. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I said, you know, well, this is on, on the one side, you know, on the one hand side, great and, ex and exciting. But on the other hand, it's like, I, I need to understand what is going on to the, you know, during this process. I need to understand the logic of this process. I cannot explain the whole, the whole rejuvenation by one base out of 7 billion base pairs of the, of the, of the genome that I'm looking at. I mean, that's, that's just <laughs> impossible. <laughs> So that's, and that's the reason why we developed, we started developing, you know, new clocks uh, that are looking at the whole genome now. Wow. And now in an unbiased way, we are trying to understand if there are features of, of the genome that are changing in a predictable way as we age and also as we, as we uh, intervene with. So uh, you're, so you guys are in the middle of creating clocks yeah. because you need to actually measure the rejuvenation that you're seeing. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's ridiculously interesting. Are you using like the whole methylome or the whole genome? Yeah, we are we are using the whole genome, and we are not using algorithms. So we are not training. Wow. We're not training the system to in any way. We are just looking at the genome, and we are extrapolating from the genome features through machine learning features that are invisible to the to our you know human eyes. <laughs> But that a machine uh, learning kind of you know approach can actually extrapolate because you know it can look combinatorially at, at, at a number of these, but it's not trained. It's just extracting wow. information from a from a screenshot, if you wish. Yeah. Screenshot taking a different time, so it's extrapolating the whole information and it's trying to kind of uh, make uh, uh, an order out of this of this mass and try to to really come out with with features that are changed biological features that are changing and to make an ex just to make an example we found that there is one feature that seems to be consistently changing over time across different cell types so this can potentially lead to a universal clock uh, which is a particular part of the genome that is bound by 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 a, a protein complex and we saw that this particular part of the genome keep changing, keep being hypermethylated with time. And when we come in with rejuvenation, for example, with the epigenetic reprogramming, we see that that same feature now is becoming younger. So it's becoming demethylated with, uh, with reprogramming. So what, yeah. what's that protein about? <laughs> so this is a protein complex that is called the PRC2. Uh, and <laughs> excuse me, it's a complex that basically uh, 
generally speaking, keeps uh, uh, some developmental genes off um, oh. in, 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 in cells. So yes. those are genes that are normally expressed when we embryonically develop, yes. but at yes. some point they need to be turned off. Right. We see that these regions that are bound by these repressive complex become hypermethylated with, with time. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is associated with an aberrant expression of those developmental genes that now start becoming expressed uh, as we age. Interesting. And we don't know if the binding of that complex now becomes loose. And so that's the reason why these genes now are being turned right. off. Or maybe it's because there is something even at a higher order that is happening. And so maybe these genes not only are bound by this repressive complex, but they're also in the in the in the nucleus. They are in, in, in parts of the of the of the nucleus where they're also being kept silenced. And by hypermethylating them, maybe they detach from those regions and they move into regions of the nucleus where they become active now. So we're trying to understand the biology of this phenomenon. And, uh, and I think this is more interesting because at least we can start understanding the whole the whole process. Yeah. It's incredibly complex. It is. It's yeah. like that joke about epigenetics. Just say it's epigenetics. I mean, it's just so <laughs> complex. It's exactly. really interesting. But it seems like what you're suggesting is that some sort of, it's possible that later in life, there may be aberrant expressions of genes that should be repressed That because we're only acting, we're only using them in embryogenesis. But as things maybe get sloppy or or if it's not just sloppy, it's um, maybe some program phenomena that's happening that's allowing these to sort of relocate and turn back on. Is Am I getting it? Absolutely. You're right. Yeah. That's interesting. It's really interesting. Okay. So um, my next question is, um, you. so you said to me on the podcast that, you know, you really thought that like, root cause aging, if you will, is happening in the epigenome. Um, but you say it's your opinion. And I'm, I just thought that that's fascinating that you're saying it's your opinion. And yet in your research, you're really demonstrating that. So why not put that stake in the ground a little bit more strongly? What's the, yeah. I think that to clarify what I said the other time was, yeah. um, I, I I don't necessarily so there, there are a lot of different theories about aging, right? Yes. There is uh, the disposable soma theory. There is the, the you know the accumulation of uh, uh, damage theory and, and, yes. and others. So what I what I wanted to clarify is that I do I am agnostic about what the theory of aging is. Okay, I I don't know. There is not a consensus as of yet of what's really the root cause of aging. Uh, and uh, I, I don't have a particular opinion about what is the, the most uh, accurate uh, theory. Of, they're, they're all inaccurate, but I don't know what, what is the most accurate of, of all of them. Um, so that's, that's why I don't necessarily think that epigenetic changes are the causes, are, you know, are the causes of aging, okay, in, the, in, that, in that sense. You know, I don't know if, if that's, that's, that's clear. Uh, but what I'm really strong and adamant about is that mm -hmm. whatever the theory of aging is, you know, again, it can be developmental, it can be uh, accumulation of damage, uh, whatever that is, it results in epigenetic changes that are, in my opinion, and I'm really strong about this, are across the, all the hallmarks are the hierarchically dominant 
hallmark of aging. Okay, so that's my strong, my strong opinion, and it's what you've demonstrated, though, wouldn't yeah. you say? Yeah, yeah. And since the epigenome the epigenome is hierarchically dominant and also reprogrammable, I think that by reprogramming the epigenome, we can, as a cascade, reprogram all the other hallmarks of aging because they're yeah. just, you know, in a in a kind of a, a, a second layer of importance. Got it, got it, uh, got it. So regardless of the why, yeah, this is the this is it appears to be the business end of you know in terms of manipulating all of the hallmarks. Okay, cool. Um, you had talked to me about purposely putting your attention on human cells. Um, and that being comp the 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 more challenging but closer to being translatable than human or excuse me than animal models and i just i just I, we were curious about why that is what what is it about cell the human cell studies that make it so much harder than animals um so let, let me start by saying that uh, I am. I mean, with uh, all. I mean, I come. I come from uh, from basic basic biology history. Uh, as much as I value uh, the animal models, uh, you know, across the spectrum, you know, from the simplest uh, from the simplest uh, organism to the most complex organism. As much as I value those models, I think they are fantastic ways actually to to expand and extend our our understanding and our knowledge. When it comes to develop therapies, I think that uh, those models are uh, largely insufficient uh, to to for 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 the goal that we that we have. And in particular, if we want to have a goal that is in the in kind of the short in the short term, or not in such a long term. <laughs> let's say, mm -hmm. let's that way. <laughs> yeah. what am I trying to say? I, in in a non diplomatic way, what I'm trying to say is that. Uh, um, I am a little bit sick of uh, seeing, uh, uh, you know, potentially groundbreaking uh, <laughs> technologies and discoveries that work beautifully in, uh, you know, in, in 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 animals, and that almost all of the times don't work in humans because you know humans are so similar but also so different from from animal models. Uh, and so I think that now the technology really allows us to uh, start asking the right questions using the right tools in the right models. Uh, for example, you know, using uh, human organoids uh, or human tissues or or some sort of, you know, again, simplified version of the human organs and the human tissues. And I think I, I would I would rather spend a little bit more attention and time and efforts and, and resources on that. Because I think that as imperfect as they are, like the animal models, but they're definitely a step closer to the complexity of the 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 the, the, the goal that you have that you have in mind, which is treating human diseases and treating human aging. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so that's the reason why, I mean, but, but it's, it's difficult, of course, because of course you have to rely on, uh, um, specimens that are often difficult to get, uh, in some cases, ethically, uh, concerning also to, to, to get, uh, mm -hmm. uh, times impossible because maybe you have to rely on, on tissues that are, are not, are not available. And, and so it's, it's, uh, it's very challenging. But I think it's as challenging as as the the goal that we have in mind. And uh, I, I again, I, I I have I have I have I have spent all my all, all the entire research that we did on aging was 
almost entirely done on, on human cells because like, at, at the end, I wanted to have something that was really, um, that could really have a potential for, for treating human diseases and human aging. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it was a long way to answer your question. Well, yeah. you know, let me just ask you this. And I know this is not your wheelhouse and it feels almost like a dumb question, but whatever. Um, you know, as a clinician, we're always trying to translate research. You know, as a clinician in functional medicine, we're thinking about translating research. And actually, since science is sort of in the popular media now, yeah. um, especially longevity, and everybody's like hungry for what's happening, people will extrapolate from animal studies and start experimenting on themselves. But in my, you know, when I think about it, and my colleagues and I think about it, I mean, if would you, is there, would you think about, would you, if you were going to translate, <laughs> which I don't know that you would, but if you were going to make decisions on clinical decisions around cell studies versus animal studies, what would they be? Would you look at animal studies or would you look at cells? I've... Well, the animal <laughs> studies are necessary, absolutely. Yeah. But what, what I'm trying to say is that the discovery, in my opinion now, that we have the tools and the technology, the discovery now should be done on human cells and human sure. tissues. And then, of course, it needs to be, it needs to be at uh, reverse translated in a, in a way to, to animals because you, you need safety. to detect safety, some sort of efficacy also. Yeah. Uh, but the biology of the aging, despite, you know, there, is a, a, there are a lot of similarities, of course, you know, uh, the, uh, our aging is in, in a way is very similar to the aging that you see in, uh, in, 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 in rodents. Yeah, in mammal, yeah. But it's also so dramatically different. I mean, sure. it happens over the uh, lifespan, which is, you know, 80, 90 years old versus two years old. Yeah. And it's not just a matter of accelerating a process that is the same. It's not just as simple as that. You know, it's not just a matter of you know uh, extending you know that 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 that's that's uh, that's a sure. biological process over over the course. No, that's not as simple as that. Yeah. The complexity, the, the the structural complexity of the tissue is completely different. The cells, the cell types, you know, they're similar, but at the same time, they behave differently. Um, you know, the, the the brain. I mean, just how can you sure. study the, age, the, brain, the brain aging since our brain is so different from any brain of, of rodents? I mean, yeah. I, I don't think it's, a, it's a, you know, it's a fair comparison. And, and again, up to now or up to a few years ago, you know, we didn't have the right tools. Fine. You know, we have, you have to work with what you have and you have to try to, to make the best out of it. But now that we have access to, to cells, now that we have ways to culture human organoids, we can make iPSCs. We can make we can we can build all sorts of uh, uh, quasi-perfect uh, uh, tissues out of those cells. I think I think we should start working on those, and, and and this would accelerate dramatically the pace at which not only you discover drugs, but you also find candidates that really have a potential to be translated because they have been tested on human on human tissues and human yeah that's right i get it yeah and uh, yeah um so let me just ask you quickly going back to the <laughs> clock conversation the mammalian clock that um horvath recently published on like is that that's still the pixel right you're still looking at a couple of pixels even though it's across mammals yeah okay um now come just leapfrogging off of what you just said you know about the commitment to to human and human and or, human organoids. Where are we at in the clinical trial journey? Uh, so I can speak for what what Turn is doing. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, we are not too far actually from the clinical trial. We just had a um, 
um, we had a very exciting uh, first uh, conversation with uh, with the FDA. We submitted an, an early preliminary interact uh, package, which is the very 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 early conversation. You know, we we had some questions about uh, our mRNAs, the cargo, the lipid nano, the lipid nanoparticles, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and it was great, actually, because we got a, an excellent feedback from from the FDA, uh, oh. and uh, so we we had a press release last week on these. I can, <gasps> I can yes, please, yeah, I'd love to see it. Uh, That's and, uh, to the point that actually we didn't really have uh, to have a meeting with uh, with the, the FDA uh, officers. Uh, so oh. now our next our next stage now is really to to to, to develop the preclinical studies and then submit a pre IND package uh, and an IND package after after that. So we are we are really accelerating it now uh, dramatically because with this this first conversation was absolutely important for us to understand how the FDA is thinking about this because it's completely new territory for for them and, and it was very reassuring and pleasing to see that actually we are on the same page and uh, uh, and so now it's just a matter of really start developing this this technology and to bring it to to to, to phase one so if everything goes well money funding <laughs> and so on, <laughs> I think we are we are really looking at uh, a phase one that would start relatively soon. So uh, I hopefully early twenty twenty five. Wow, that's incredible! Yeah. yeah, I would love to see the the press release. Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess I don't know. You know, I, I I don't know that you'll. This is a little off to the right, but you know, Charles. You know, Charles Brenner is huge on Twitter, and he's always he's always actually accosting. David Sinclair it's like a kind of a humorous drama that those guys have going or he has I um but he really challenges the you know the by the 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 um publications Sinclair's publications out of Harvard and, and you know does not think that you know that, that the aging phenomena is actually happening and they're reversing it and I just wondered if you've been following that at all it seems like you're aware of it and what your thoughts are on this like sort of heated drama well, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm aware of it. I mean, I'm not following it, uh, you know, super closely. Uh, yeah. Of course, when it comes to science, like in any other discipline, I mean, every time there is something new, this obviously stirs stirs a lot of a lot of uh, um, kind of <laughs> egos. Uh, and yeah, yeah. So any new idea comes, of course, with the, with the potential, but also with a lot of controversy around it, because until until it really gets either disproved or understood, uh, which are, I think, the, the two sides of the same coin in a, in a, in a way. Um, so I, I think, I mean, he has a point when it comes to, for example, uh, saying, well, is that is that paper really the proof that's the, the fundamental cause? Or to go back to the, our question initially, like to really show that that's really the fundamental cause of aging, I think is right in the sense that it doesn't really necessarily prove that that's really the fundamental cause of aging. Also, because again, the method that has been used is through induction of uh, double strand breaks, uh, which are obviously also impacting the the sequence of the genes, um, you know. So uh, again, I think it's it's more a theoretical kind of controversy uh, about the theory that that explains aging, but it I don't think it and I, th I think he has a lot of a lot of reasons to really say that maybe it has it hasn't been fun it hasn't been shown 
that really that's that's the cause of of aging. But again, I don't think that that, that changes the the whole picture because again, it may not be the cause, but it's the manifestation mm -hmm. that is really what what really we care about. You know, when it comes to uh, rejuvenation and and resetting that 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 uh, that program back to a youthful state. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. All right. And so then my final question again, it's like it's a little. It might be a little bit outside your wheelhouse, but I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts. So for me, being um, in functional medicine and thinking about nutrition, you know, I was, you know, Randy Jertle is is has a has kind of a godlike stature in my field, you know, and the fact that he showed using methyl donors, you know, this remarkable phenotype change in the Ugudi mouse, mouse model. Um, and I'm just like, I, I'm just wondering, let me see. For me, this suggests that nutrients are potentially an exceptionally powerful influence on the methylome, on the epigenome, especially when delivered during certain developmental windows. But, you know, we know it we can change. We know my, from the my diet and lifestyle interventions that we could change gene expression. I, I'm just like, do you have thoughts on that at all? It's maybe a selfish question for me because it's my area, but yeah. Well, yeah, I, I do have thoughts uh, in the sense that I, I absolutely think and firmly believe that uh, nutrition, uh, you know, together with many other things, has a, has, a, has a really fundamental impact on gene expression. And it has uh, implications on gene expression, again, because it has implications on, on, the, on the epigenome. So I absolutely think that, uh, yes, nutrients uh, can epigenetically impact uh our our body our cells our tissues and by doing so they can you know either accelerate aging or uh, kind of slow it slow it down um over time i'm absolutely i i'm totally not not only the nutrients but also again caloric exercise, restriction for example, yeah. you know exercise uh, even the amount of food uh, yes uh, yes you no know, is, is is and we in our study on the on the on the index we saw that caloric restriction like epigenetic reprogramming have the same impact on the same regions of the of the of the genome wow so they are working through the same mechanism of rejuvenation if you wish mm -hmm. um in ways that again we we don't understand but uh, it's uh, it's exciting to see that uh, oh. uh, that's that's happening. Have you shown anything else to work similarly to epigenetic rejuvenation besides caloric restriction? No, but we saw that uh, uh, rapamycin treatment, for example, is not acting on the same region. It's working on different yeah. regions, and we don't again we don't understand why. Um, oh. um, Metformin, not yet, because we didn't have the data to look at. We were we were trying to mine uh, existing data sets, uh, yeah. and there was not nothing available. So so far, caloric restriction and epigenetic reprogram seem to be working at least in part through the same mechanism. Yeah, that's super fascinating. Yeah. What's the in, what is this index clock that you're using? So we we call it the PRC two index, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we have a publication under review now, but it's okay. also publicly available. I can send that to you, so maybe yes. you can read it. Yes, I would like to. Mm -hmm. uh, is and... this a clock specific for your research in your models, or is this no. something that you could use be, that people could use? Any anybody could use it. Yeah. Is it available? Or you have your you the the, the CPGs the clock structure is available so. You could run it on like the Illumina or something. 
Yeah, well, the the, the okay. sequencing can be done on any on any platform. Uh, it can be done, uh, you know, on Illumina. It can be done through microarray. It can be done through 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 any any platform. Uh, and as I said, it doesn't require any specific algorithm, so there is no code oh, right. associated with it. So it's just a feature of the genome that you can you can extrapolate easily without any any complex uh, you know bioinformatic tool. So it's it's uh, it's much easier to 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 look at uh, because again it doesn't require machine learning training. It's it's yeah. just uh, it's just focusing and zooming in into specific regions of the genome that have a specific behavior over over time. Yeah. So it wouldn't really be appropriate outside of a research setting. No, not... it would. I think it would. But again, we go back to the question: like, what what of this of, of the clocks actually? Because the 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 downside of our approach is that it, you need to look at the whole genome. Yeah. So it's, it's more expensive than, yeah. a, than a clock, and so mm -hmm. that becomes a little bit more challenging. Of course, when it comes to kind of you know, can sure. you use it for every every single person? Well, maybe maybe not because it's very expensive. And so, is it worth? using it so that's why i think we we need to develop a, a kind of really consensus about about this uh but on the flip side you know the sequences is becoming so cheap now that mm. uh you know with few hundred bucks you can you can have the information across the whole the whole genome and so instead of spending spending maybe a couple of dollars you spend a couple of hundred dollars uh, and, and you get a much more comprehensive information about about what the, the the whole process. Okay, so that paper and then the press release, if you could send those to me, and that's um, that's all I've got, Vittorio. Thank you so much for making sure. some more time. Okay, Pleasure. okay, <laughs> Bye, ciao, ciao, bye. As always, thank you for listening to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where because of my sponsors, I am able to bring you the best minds in functional medicine, and of course, today is no exception. Not everybody can be a sponsor on my platform, so I appreciate the good work, the relentless research, and the generous support from my friends at Rupa Health, Biotics Research, and Integrative Therapeutics. These are brands I know and trust in my own clinic, and I can confidently recommend them to you. Visit them at rupahealth.com, bioticsresearch.com, and integrativepro.com. And please let them know that you learned about them on New Frontiers. And if it's not too much to ask, I would really appreciate a thumbs up or a kind review wherever you're listening to New Frontiers. Thanks.